Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And if you were here on Sunday, you heard an entire message on that verse. But I wanted to give the context. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Lord willing, I'm going to preach from Romans 12 to this coming Sunday. And as I mentioned last Wednesday night, we'll be distributing ministry finders. And in this month, emphasizing to you finding your place in the body of Christ. But I want to speak to you tonight with the help of the Lord on the will of God. And you may be seated. Over a period of time, you tell stories from your life. You only have one life and so many stories. And I try to be careful to not be too redundant, although I know the essence of learning is repetition. And the Apostle Peter said, as long as I'm in this tabernacle, I'm going to stir you up in remembrance. So some things are reminding. And there are subjects that you teach because they're necessary. And then there are subjects you teach that you feel like it's so ingrained in your own life experience that it is somewhat of a life message. And for me, when I teach on the will of God or write on the will of God, it really comes out of life experience in seeking the Lord to try to discover and do His will, especially in my later teenage years. I was consumed with the idea of finding the will of God and I know that they say hindsight is twenty twenty, And so it's clear now the path that God was leading me. But at the time, I did not understand. I was in the dark. I had no idea what God was wanting to do in my life. I take comfort in knowing that our general superintendent, Dr. David Bernard, was a, a senior or graduating from law school and did not know that he would soon take a turn in his ministry in his life, instead of being a lawyer, he would go into ministry. So sometimes God conceals his will for a time and for a purpose, and then when he is ready, he reveals his will. God can do both, conceal or reveal his will. So I look back and I can see the timing of God and what he did in my life. But growing up, I heard enough preaching and teaching about the will of God to at least know that it was vital to my success. I saw it as somewhat of a burden that while my friends in public high school could just pick a career and go for it, that because I was a Christian, that I had to find the will of God. I saw it as a burden, an extra responsibility on my shoulders that I had to go figure this out. And so from my perspective, it was very difficult. I heard numbers of evangelists that had preached in our church, talk about running from the will of God as if the will of God was a big bad gorilla that was chasing you. And if you were not fast enough, eventually the will of God would grab you, wrestle you to the ground, and force you to do what He wanted you to do. So because it, wasn't, it was honestly not in my nature to run from the will of God, I thought I probably didn't have a call to preach And the Lord didn't have a special purpose in my life. And so being a preacher was not an option to me because from everything I could see, I was totally unqualified for the ministry. I was conscientious, and I'm sure I was overthinking the entire process. I asked different adults in my life that I respected about finding the will of God, and most of the answers were rather generic pray about it. One of my, uh, an elder in my life just told me, uh, I, I said, how, how will I know that I found the will of God? And he said to me, you'll just know. Well, that wasn't a very good answer for me. I like to know a little more than you'll just know. And I can see a little bit now what he meant by that, but that was not the answer I was looking for. So, I felt like there was more to know about the will of God than you'll just know 
when you get there. Because what if I don't get there and I think I know? How can I know that I am in the will of God? So uh, I'd like to just share some insights scripturally, some from experience and in my ministry because I spent 17 years of my life in youth ministry or working with college students. I spent a lot of time working with people at a season of their life when they were trying to discover, find, know the will of God. And so I wrote, I've written about it, thought about it, taught about it every couple of years at our youth camps. I, I go down, they ask me to come usually, and, and I teach on the will of God. Well, this is kind of a beefed-up version of a will of God for youth. And I really say all of that to say that I believe many people are puzzled. Many people live feeling they have missed the will of God. Many people fear the will of God. And all of us want to know that we are pleasing to God. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, you should pray, and I think you should pray the Lord's Prayer, and not just recite it or pray it in its entirety without thinking about, thinking about it, but pray it phrase by phrase and elaborate on it. This morning, that's one of the things that I did. I just got hung up on praying the Lord's Prayer each phrase and making sure that I dug deep and did some self-examination when I prayed, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation. But when you pray the Lord's Prayer, you should pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Now a kingdom has a king. And a kingdom having a king has a person who's an absolute monarch. He's a ruler. And when you pray for the kingdom of God to come, you pray for the king to come in your life. And as king, he's not just a savior to drag you out of the pit you're drowning in, but to become the Lord of your life. And when you pray, thy kingdom come and thy will be done, you're asking God, a sovereign God, to have his way in your life. For what he would will for you to do, for what he would will for you to be, for that to be done in your life. And in the same way that it is done in heaven, in its perfect tense, we pray that it would come in this earth and in our lives in that dimension. The kingdom of God to come and the will of God to be done. Understanding the will of God is fundamental to our relationship with God. I, I mentioned Romans 12, 1 and 2. Read it as a text. I have it in the notes. If you could just go on media straight to verse 2. And as I already mentioned in my introductory comments, I preached on verse 1 on Sunday. Lord willing, I'll preach on verse 2 more uh, this coming Sunday. But for, for the purposes of tonight, I want to just make a couple comments. Paul says, to not be conformed to this world. Don't let the world around you force you into its mold. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You cannot do the will of God, know the will of God, if you have not been transformed spiritually by the plan of salvation, the new birth, repenting, being baptized in Jesus' name and water for the remission of sins, and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. That brings you into the kingdom of God, the new birth experience. But even having done that, there has to be a renewing of your mind. It's a transformational process. And Paul says when that happens, you can prove what is that good and perfect, that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. The word prove uh, comes from the idea of testing metals or to explore or investigate or ascertain that you may prove the will of God. That means that the will of God is not something that you just discover like buried treasure once in a lifetime. It is something that you live out day by day and you practice it in daily obedience to the Word of God and the inner promptings 
of the Holy Spirit as God guides you. When the Bible tells you to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, it doesn't mean that everyone has a different version of how to be saved, but each of us have a unique path to walk, and we have to work that out on a daily basis in our lives. It may be hourly or by the minute or by the second, but I think you get the idea. You have to prove it by living it out. It's a practical matter that you may prove the will of God. Now, I want to say something that may go against something you've been taught at some time in your life or repeated or have said. But I do not believe the Scripture teaches that the will of God is in levels. I've heard people speak of the permissive will of God. And what they say by that is that you may be doing something that God doesn't really want you to do, but He's just permitting it. It's His permissive will. I do not think that you can search the Scriptures and find that phrase or that concept in the Bible. Now, it doesn't mean that if you don't do the perfect will of God that He's going to instantly kill you, I hope. Although, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, He has struck people dead, struck them with blindness, like Elamus the sorcerer. So don't get to thinking that God doesn't judge people who are presumptuous or evil or whatever. But to say that, I just want to live as permissively as possible. I didn't say promiscuously. I said permissively. I want to do the bare minimum just enough to go to heaven, but I don't want to be so bad that God zaps me. Somewhere... You know, just this side of him killing me for for not obeying him. That's where I want to live. Now, I can't even fathom a God like that as revealed in the Bible. That God just says, you know, I really don't want you to do that, but it's fine. I'll permit it, the permissive will of God. Other people think that the will of God is multiple choice, and they get this from... Romans 12 and 2, that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. And they see it somewhat like concentric circles on a target, the outer level of good, and then you get a little more spiritual and it's acceptable, and if you really get spiritual, it's the perfect will of God. Or like level 1 is good, and level 2 is acceptable, and level 3 is perfect. You already see that that doesn't make any sense, right? Now, the will of God is good. Amen? And it is acceptable to God. And all you have to do is go back one whole verse, right? To know that you are to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable. Paul only, he he reuses the same word in two consecutive verses to say that the will of God is good. It is a way to live that is acceptable to God, just as those Old Testament sacrifices were examined by the priests and found acceptable. It is good, it is acceptable, and it is perfect. Now, you may say, you know, on this level idea, God called me to be a lawyer, and uh, I decided not to be a lawyer. I just decided to be a file clerk. So I'm in the goodwill of God. God called me to be a lawyer, And I just decided to be a paralegal, so I'm in the good will, acceptable will of God. I was good, now I'm acceptable. God called me to be a lawyer, so I became a lawyer. Now I'm in the perfect will of God. Now, you may not achieve God's highest goals for your life, but the will of God is not in levels 1, 2, 3, or concentric circles like 5 points, 10 points, and 50 points. The will of God is good, it is acceptable, and it is perfect. Amen. The will of God is all of the above. And perfect means to be free from defect, stain, or injury. It means complete. It means that you have walked out in a way. That's why you prove the will of God. 
I can say as Paul did, he was separated to the gospel. But before that, he was saved, he was called, he was separated. His life was progressive. When I look back in my life, I see God's call. I first detected it at age 16, but I didn't know what that was. Now looking back through the lens of history, I can see what God was doing. But at the time, I could say this was a good stage in my life of God leading me to obedience to Him. And then He defined His will more and more and more. Called to be a Christian, separated to the gospel, right? I begin to see the definition of the will of God in my life. And I believe that that's what God does. As He more clearly defines His will in your life, there's more specificity and you see, okay, this is the unfolding or the proving of the will of God. Now I want you to just please make a mental note of this. That Romans 12 is one of two primary passages in the Bible, as you've heard me say before, that discuss spiritual gifts. And remember, Romans 1 through 11 kind of is in a large category. Romans 12 begins practical instruction. As I mentioned this past Sunday, and so now when Paul lays this foundation of 12, 1 and 2, he now moves into the idea of spiritual gifts. And I believe if you understand Romans 12 in context, the way it was written, that you know that Paul is setting you up, that you make your life a living sacrifice, you commit to doing the will of God, and then you recognize the spiritual gifts that He's placed in you, and you fulfill your function in the body of Christ. Whether you have the gift of prophecy, you're a teacher, or all the gifts that are mentioned in Romans chapter 12. That becomes more definite, or more defined rather, as you walk out the will of God in your life. Amen. So just lock that away for Romans chapter 12. Now I want to lay out some kind of general principles. I'm not going to drill down, hopefully, too deep into each of these ideas. But I want to give you some general principles about the will of God so that you can know them and make sure you kind of lock this away. First of all, God wants you to be filled with the knowledge of His will. Colossians 1 and 9. For this cause we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you that, uh, and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now you can go on in this passage. It's very powerful. But I just want you to see this general idea that God doesn't want you to be in the dark about His will. He wants you to be in the light. He wants you to be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So God wants you to know His will. And He told the Colossians that He prayed for it. So to me, I understand that the will of God is not something that's just intellectually understood, but it's something that comes by prayer and spiritual understanding. That's why I know why that adult meant to me when he said to me, you'll just know. It is something that God shows you, but I think there's more to just that one idea. So God opens your understanding. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17. The Apostle Paul again writes, See that you walk circumspectly, looking around, not as fools but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Now, circumspectly, you know, the idea of circum is around. But in this verse, it really means to, look, to walk carefully, to live in a way that is sincere and sensitive to the will of God in your life. And when Paul says, redeeming the time, from the Greek it means to buy up the opportunity. I kind of envision buying up stock at a really good deal or going to the grocery door and there's a store and there's a big markdown and you just buy it up because it's a great opportunity that you don't want to miss. And Paul says you need to buy up the opportunity to do the will of God right now because knowing the time, it is high time to wake out of sleep. That's the context of that passage. Don't squander your opportunity. Now... I believe that the will of God has to start general and move to more specific. 
So let's look at some big picture aspects of the will of God. If you wanted to see what God is doing in all the earth, I will tell you in a single word what I believe God's goal is, and that is submission. That everything will be brought back under His authority when it is all said and done, that all things will be under His feet. Okay? Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. Having made known unto us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure which He hath purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are upon the earth. In other words, God's goal is to bring everything back under His total authority so the kingdom of God will come and the will of God will be done. 1 Corinthians 15, 28 tells us that eventually that God may be all in all, that everything is subject unto Him. In Philippians 2, 9-11, through 11, a familiar passage to many of us, the Bible speaks of every knee bowing. Things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth. Of every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you want to see what's going to happen at the very end of all things, when time is no more and eternity is begin, everything that is outside the authority of God will come under His complete and total control. He will be King of kings and Lord of lords forever and ever. It is the will of God that all things be brought back into submission to Him. But, you know, you can't bring Satan under His feet. And you can't bring all of nature under His feet. And you can't bring all the governments of the world under His authority. There's really only one person that you have control of, and that is yourself. And if you want to do the ultimate will of God, starting right now, it's to say, Lord, I bow my knee to you. I confess with my tongue that you are the Lord of Daryl Johns from head to toe every day, every facet of my life. There are no, no trespassing signs. There's no off limits to you. You have total freedom to guide me, to speak to me, to do anything you want with my life. Now I'm saying that preaching, but every one of us have to walk it out. Amen? But you say, I want the will of God. Well, start by saying, you're the Lord of my life and there is no exception to your Lordship. Amen. You know, we don't have any room. It's locked away. Say, God, you can come everywhere but that internet site. God, you can come anywhere but that playlist. God, you can come anywhere in my life but that secret world where I imagine and allow my lust to get carried away. You can allow God access, you think, everywhere, but it's the place that you block Him out that He wants in, and only when He has total access is He truly Lord of your life. Amen? You've got to start by saying, I'm bowing my knee, I'm confessing with my tongue, that is the will of God. Amen. If you want to know God's will, 2 Peter 3 and 9 I'll just go straight to the heart of it. That he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The ultimate will of God would be that every knee would bow, that every person would be saved. Now we know that that is not unconditional, that just because God wills it to be so, doesn't mean that it is so. He's not willing, it's not his desire that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The condition of salvation starts with turning from sin into God. So we know that not everyone is automatically saved just because it's His will, but we know that that is the will of God. And I just want to remind you, by the way, 1 Timothy 2 and 4 says that He will have all men to be saved, or it is His desire that all men would be saved. And my point of bringing this up partly is because it's the will of God, and that if we love the Lord, we should love what He loved, and He loves lost people. And that every saint of God should love lost people like God loves lost people. Evangelism is not limited to a few people who have the gift of gab. You can talk to other people easily. Evangelism is for every shy person 
every extrovert. It's for every person who's in the body of Christ. Amen? It is the will of God that all would come to repentance. And He's allowed us to be involved in that ministry of reconciliation, of bringing people back to Himself. It is also the will of God for us to not live in a protracted spiritual infancy, that it's God's will that we would grow up in Christ. Amen? Colossians 1, 9 and 10. Now we read this verse early. To be filled with the knowledge of His will. Right? Verse 9. Look at verse 10. That you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. In 1 Thessalonians 4, the Apostle Paul spoke about this idea, how you would please the Lord and would abound more and more. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 on the screens. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you would know how to possess his vessel. He's talking about specifically sexual purity, but he is also saying that in your life, it is the will of God for you to grow up and mature as a Christian. And I could go on and on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, but I just want you to know that it is the will of God for you, that all of us who got started serving God, to grow up and mature and to be actually holy in the way we live. There are times in our life when God allows us to go through a season of suffering. And the Apostle Peter writes about this. And I just want to make the note that it may be the will of God, as the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 3, or 1 rather, that there, it may need to be in your life that there is a time of heaviness and manifold temptations. The Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 4 and 19, Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their soul to Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. There are times when it is the will of God to allow us to go through a season of suffering. And the Apostle Peter says, If need be. And the need is not God's need, but it is a need for us to be like Him for the maturity of our soul. And I could tell a personal story of a sermon Brother Jerry Jones preached, those three words, if need be, was impacting in my life and in my wife, and it prepared me and, and my wife and myself for a season of suffering in our life. I can tell you that God does allow us to go through seasons of suffering. One more general idea about the will of God in the global sense and I know you're thinking of this already, so I thought I'd go ahead and say it. It is the will of God for you to be thankful. Right? 1 Thessalonians 5.18. In everything. By the way, Paul likes to talk about the will of God in 1 Thessalonians. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. You can be a grumbly, gripey person if you want, but it is the will of God for you to be thankful. Amen. Now, I told you the will of God is progressive, good, acceptable, perfect will of God. It starts general and leads to more specific direction from God as His will plays out in your life. And you, you prove it in practical experience. But I think it's important to get the order right because I would have to say that in my life early on, and I've observed this a lot, that many people want to know what God wants them to do. Lord, what do you want me to do? Well, I believe that the scripture bears this out, that the first thing the Lord wants you to know, the first part about the will of God is knowing God. If you read the story of Isaiah... In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, Isaiah has a vision of God. And God is getting ready to commission Isaiah to go tell something, to go do something. But before Isaiah is ever commissioned to go, the Lord first comes to him and confronts Isaiah with his own sin, with his own life. And Isaiah says, Woe is me, I'm undone. 
I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of an unclean people. And the Lord comes to him, takes a live coal from the altar, touches his lips. And the Lord said in Isaiah 6 and 7, the Bible said, And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. So the first thing God did with Isaiah is to get him in a right relationship. Also, verse 8, he said, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. So I believe by experience and by the Scripture that the very first part of the will of God is your personal walk with God. Let me give you another illustration and some application. The Apostle Paul. He meets the Lord on the road to Damascus. And he's breathing out threatenings and slaughter. He's killing Christians, compelling them to blaspheme, locking them up in prison. He's on his way to Damascus. He's going to do it there. He has letters in his pocket. There's a blinding light, a voice from heaven, the appearance of the resurrected and exalted Jesus Christ appears to him on the road. And there is a voice that says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, at this point he is called Saul of Tarshish. And Saul says, who are you, Lord? Who art thou, Lord? Who in the world is this? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks those ox goats. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what would thou have me to do? Now I want to just do a little application. A lot of people start with, Lord, what do you want me to do? When you really need to start with, who are you, Lord? Well, I just want to repeat something I've said across the you know, last 21 years. That looking back in my life, I believe that at 16, God called me to himself. He called me to figure out who he was and to learn how to pray and fast and have a relationship with God. He was wise enough to not tell me what he wanted me to do. He called me to himself. And I'm glad that my ministry call was rooted in a relationship with God, not the other way around. I didn't think I had a call to preach and then have to go backfill with being a Christian. Now that may not matter or make any sense to you, but I worked in a Bible college for 10 years and I saw a lot of young adults and I see some heads nodding now of former Bible college students. We all knew people that had a call to preach. But they, they hadn't responded to the call to be a Christian yet. That's why when... <laughs> that's why I'm just seeing people smiling that have had this experience. So I'm just, you know, we're all relating to one another here a little bit. Well, private smiles in the congregation of knowing nods, you know. So I, I saw so many young people and I don't doubt that they had some kind of a call to God. But I have to believe that before God called them to go to Timbuktu or Timbuktu or wherever, there is a call to God Himself. There is a call to prayer. There is a call to a relationship. That's why at my ripe old age, I'm not that impressed with ability that isn't preceded by consecration. That's why even if you can sing or preach or talk well or whatever, that doesn't impress me. I want to know, have you found an altar in your life? Do you have a relationship with God? Is there something between you and Him that has fueled the fire of the call? Don't get it backwards. You've been asking God to give you all the specifics of where and when and what and how and you don't yet know, why don't you back up a few steps? And instead of saying, what do you want me to do? Why don't you say, who are you, Lord? Amen.
That was Paul's ultimate prayer in life, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, in the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable unto his death. Paul's life goal, more than preaching to the Gentiles or wherever God would send him, was to have a personal walk with God to know Jesus Christ himself. Those were the first words he ever said to Jesus. Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Build your life. And when I say ministry, I'm not talking about preaching or carrying a license in your pocket or having fellowship with a particular ministerial organization like the United Pentecostal Church. I'm just saying that whatever God calls you to do, let it be generated by a spirit of love for God. Amen? A walk with God. Let that be the birthplace of your call of God and the will of God. Amen. Just want to make sure I kind of finish that thought because it's a deep brooding thought in me. Ministry of all kinds can be difficult, it can be like a thankless job. You know, at Atlanta West, we try to say thank you often. I didn't even think about saying this now when I said what I did at the beginning of my message. Express appreciation. October the 14th, we will have a tremendous volunteer celebration. We do it every other year. But when you serve week in and week out in ministry, and if you're waiting two years for somebody to say thank you, that's a long time for a thank you. We hopefully say thank you more than that. I'm always intrigued when I read the story of John the Baptist in prison. And he sends his disciples to Jesus to say, are you the one that should come or should we look for another? And that same hour, Jesus performed miracles and he said, Go tell John that the blind see, the lame walk. I think the poor have the gospel preach of them. And, and he said, Go tell John, blessed is he who is not offended in me. And he waved goodbye and the disciples of John went back to tell John who is in prison, who would soon be beheaded, that we really think he's the real deal. And John is beheaded. And when the disciples of John walked away, it is then that Jesus began to brag on John and said, when, what went you out to see? When you went to hear the preaching of John, did you go out to see a reed shaken in the wind? You know, what kind of a person? You were looking for somebody that was dressed in fancy clothes. He said, no, and that's not John. He said, he's the he's greatest. He, he talks about what a great man John is. But if you read the sequence of the story, it's pretty plain to me that John never heard those words on this earth. That John's well done came later. And in ministry, in ministry, Jesus said, Blessed is he who is not offended in me, in the way I run my business. Because John, you may die in prison, but you have to understand you have served your role. You've done the will of God. Great is your reward in heaven. And you may not get all the accolades and the thank yous that you deserve on this earth. But there is a reward waiting for you in heaven. Amen? So my point is, if you're going to do ministry, if you're going to exercise your gift, you better make sure that ultimately you do it for the applause of one. That you do it to the glory of God. That is the praise of God that you do everything you do for. That you get the relationship before you get the ministry. Practical insights about the will of God. These are my observations. Some have biblical foundation for them. Some I think are just kind of examples of how the will of God works. I really believe, and I use the words on purpose, finding and doing the will of God. Because if you read the Bible, you'll see that doing the will of God is emphasized over finding the will of God. For me as a teenager, I thought it was like buried treasure that I was going to eventually stumble upon and dig up. And there it is, the will of God. And what I realized that it wasn't buried treasure, it was the map. It was a path to walk not a destination. 
Heaven is the destination. The will of God is the path that you walk every day to get there. It's 1 John 2.17 that says, He that doeth the will of God abideth forever. I've also learned that the will of God is much like a rose. There is an old-time apostolic preacher that learnt, gave this example. It's a poem. It's a song now. But many years ago, he told a young man who was asking about the will of God, took him out back in his yard, and he picked a rosebud off the fence of his yard, and he held the rosebud in his hand. This is a story that I heard that I believe is fairly accurate to the real story. And he took that rosebud, and he just began to pull it open. He just pulled it open. And he said, this is how the will of God is. You can try to force the will of God to open in your life. But if you do, you will destroy what it can be. For the will of God is like a rose. You have to let it unfold. When I was 18 to 20 years old in that season of my life, I was going after the will of God. You know, I wanted to know all the answers that God had for me. I remember going in to speak to an elder who was doing a, a semester of lecturing at the Bible college. And I asked him to please tell me everything he saw in my life that needed to change so that I could kind of be perfect, you know, because I'm a perfectionist. And, and I was really disappointed because he said some nice generic things to me and the hand of God is on your life. And, you know, we prayed or whatever. We talked a while and he let me go. And he didn't give me a list, you know, and I love lists. And I really thought he let me down. But I learned that if he would have given me a list, the list that God's been working on from then till now, that list is so long. And it's not, they're not all being checked off either, believe me. If he would have given me the list of everything God needed to do in my life, of fixing me, of making, maturing me, and if he would have told me everything God wanted me to do, in the challenges of ministry, and I guess I was about 20 or 21 years of age, I would have been so overwhelmed, I would have known I could not do it, and I would have said, woe is me, forget this. But you just live it out. The will of God has to unfold. Sometimes there's those crowning moments when everything kind of comes together. You go, oh my goodness, there it is. And you look back and you see, this is what God's been doing all this time. And I had no idea the will of God is like a rose. It just kind of has to unfold. I've learned that the will of God is kind of like a puzzle. Well, I'm not a good puzzle person. That's my wife's job. I just want to buy the picture. Like, why in the world? Would you want to buy a thousand itty-bitty pieces all cut up and spend hours putting them together when there it is right on the lid. You know, they could have done this and, and you just buy the picture like that. Thank God for creative people in the world, right? That like art and stuff like that. So I've learned the will of God is like a puzzle. And I learned this from my wife who does puzzles. Get holidays usually, not in the last year or two, but get a card table and a puzzle and throw all the pieces on there and go by and do a few pieces here and there. But if you're going to put a puzzle together, what are the first pieces you put down? The borders? The corners? Why do you put those puzzle pieces first? They're easy. They're obvious. Right? When it comes to the will of God, there's a lot of people that want to know all the obscure, the finished product. They want to put the middle together first. And I believe that in our lives, God would say, why don't you do what you know to do? Why don't you do the obvious things first? You're wanting me to reveal all the mysteries of my will. You haven't even forgiven that person that wronged you. You haven't even built a daily life of prayer. You don't spend any time reading the Bible. I've given you this wonderful opportunity 
to put together the puzzle of the will of God for your life. And I'm calling you to do what you know to do first. And you know what happens, right? As you put those obvious pieces in first, then you, you see, oh no, there's another piece and another piece and another piece. And suddenly the picture begins to take form and you see, forget that you've got the, you know, the box top, right? This is your life and you don't know what it's going to look like. But you just kind of put piece by piece by piece and suddenly you see, oh my goodness, that's what God has been doing in my life. So don't worry about the obscure details of the will of God. Do what you know to do. I mentioned this last week, I believe, but I've learned that two kinds of people miss the will of God. I preached about Jonah recently, and I believe that self-willed people who are just rebellious, I mean, it's obvious they miss the will of God. That's those evangelists I was telling you about who are running from the will of God. That giant gorilla called the will of God out to get me instead of the great gift of the will of God. And Jonah is running from God because he's just flat out rebellious. And if you're rebellious until you submit to God's will, you're never going to know the beauty of God's plan for your life. But the second person that you know, I've told you I identify with is Gideon. Gideon is a, you know, visited by the angel of the Lord and he said, you're a mighty man of valor. And Gideon looks back at the angel of the Lord and basically says, not me, got the wrong guy, a case of mistaken identity. If you want to get the mighty man of valor, you got to go somewhere else. Because look here, I'm hiding behind a wine press, threshing grain to hide it from the Midianites. And he said, Lord, look at everything that's happening to us, all the negative in our world. You know, this is not me. And then he said, Lord, how shall I save Israel? My family is poor in Manasseh, which was the poorest tribe. And I am the least in my father's house. Gideon's excuse is, I'm the poorest son of the poorest family of the poorest tribe in the whole nation of Israel. And by the way, for seven years the Midianites have invaded our land, have ravaged us, and we are in poverty. I'm the poorest kid in the poorest family the poorest tribe in a nation that's dead broke. So God can't be me. I can't speak. I can't sing. I can't do that. Do you remember when God appeared to Moses? And to, to the, Moses said to the Lord, but you, you want me to be the God talking? And I can't talk. Remember that? huh? And the Lord said to Moses, Did who made the mouth? You know, this is what we say to young people. God doesn't need your ability. He needs your availability. God didn't come to Moses because Moses had all the answers. God called Moses. He designed his life. He set him apart. And God doesn't make any mistakes. So don't run from God and don't run from yourself. Don't run from who God is telling you you are. If God is speaking to you and calling you, you may doubt yourself, but don't doubt God. And God doesn't make mistakes. The will of God makes sense four ways. First of all, maybe more than this, but it makes sense at least four ways. The will of God always makes biblical sense. The will of God will never contradict the Word of God. I could get a lot of substantiation about, you know, the inerrancy of Scripture. But I know some people that all they needed to do was read their Bibles and they would find enough about the will of God that would keep them busy for the next 10,000 years. Right? Open the Word of God. See yourself in the mirror. You've got plenty of homework. The will of God will never contradict the Word of God. So the first thing is to always obey the, will of, the Word of God. Just obey the Word of God. It is a lamp to your feet. It shines immediately. It's a light to your path. Some way, sometimes you can see down the road a ways. That's how the will of God works. Amen? The second way the will of God makes sense 
this spiritual sense. I want you, I want you to see Colossians 3.15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body, and be you thankful. Look at the word rule in Colossians 3.15. It's the only place in the New Testament that this Greek word is used, and it is the, our word umpire. Think of it this way. Let the peace of God umpire your life. If you have obeyed the word of God, you're praying for the will of God, and the Holy Ghost gives you no peace. You feel an inner turmoil, kind of this feeling that God's saying, Ugh, yuck, no. God is saying, you're out. This is not right. There is no peace. It is an indicator. You cannot let it stand alone because we're emotional beings. But when God is opening the path of His will to you, He will generally give you the peace of God. It rules in your heart. It is the umpire of the Spirit. We know that the Spirit has come to guide us into all truth, right? So the Holy Ghost is a guide... And he guides us by peace or no peace. Third way the will of God makes sense. And this is tricky, but circumstantial. Circumstantial. God opens and closes doors by circumstances. On August 31st, 1995, the voting members of this church elected me to come serve as pastor. That is a circumstance. If that boat would have not gone that way, you would have all missed the will of God. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> but I don't say that in an arrogant way. That was the will of God. It may take 21 years to prove it, but, you know, it was the will of God. I, I felt it was the will of God. My wife did was not the only option we had in our lives, but we felt this was the will of God. But there was a circumstance that I could not control. We didn't buy votes, by the way, or, you know, we, did, we just let it unfold. That's a circumstance. I, I talk to young people and used to all the time. They want to go on a missions trip. They don't have a job. They haven't saved any money. They're just praying that somebody's going to give them, you know, $2,000 out of nowhere. Get a job. Save your money. That circumstance is going to block you from going on a missions trip. Oh, I want to go to Bible college. Well, it's going to cost you $8,000 or so a year. Where's the money going to come from? Have you been working? No, I've just been kind of cruising through life, thinking that God's just going to do it for me. Well, that circumstance, you know, of not having tuition money, room and board money, may be a big no in your life. Now, circumstances are tricky, because in Acts 27, the south wind blew softly and they took a circumstance over a word of the, from the Lord, from the Apostle Paul. So you have to be careful. That's why it's all in balance. The Word of God, the Spirit of God, and open or closed doors that God gives you through circumstances. Fourth way the will of God makes sense is a sense of counsel. I just got a little wave of emotion over me because I thank God that in my life the Lord has placed throughout my life wonderful elders. A lot of them are gone now and I'm becoming that guy, that elder. But I thank God for people in my life that loved me. They didn't have a vested interest. They didn't have a dog in the fight. They wanted the best for me my dad, my grandfather, my pastor, my brother Kraft and other elders in my life, my district superintendent G.R. Travis from Mississippi and C.M. Beckton and N.A. Urshan and Jerry Jones who's not that much of an elder but I could go on and name these people that when I was at a major crossroad, I thank God that as a teenager I started reading the book of Proverbs and I saw what it said and I'll just quickly go by them Proverbs eleven fourteen, where no counsel is, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Proverbs fifteen twenty two, Proverbs twenty four six, plus other verses. Those three verses 
tell you in the multitude of counselors there is safety. I need the worship team to come give us hope and distract you just a little bit. I'm not going to quite finish, but I, I'm going to stop in just a moment. There are a lot of people, they've got their go-to counselors, their elders in their life. And as long as you've got a submitted spirit and you want to do the right thing, you always listen to them. But I've watched people that got, a, got to a place in their life, a condition, when all the people who were always right suddenly were stupid. And, you, and no one could tell them what to do. It happens a lot with young people in dating relationships Making life decisions, parents, your pastor, youth pastor, other ministers, other elders in your life that you've always listened to. Now you're shunning their voice. You don't want to get near them because you're afraid they're going to tell you something you don't want to hear. Why in the world would you want to shipwreck your life? In the multitude of counselors, there is safety. The Word of God is so objective. It's outside of you. Prayer and the work of the Holy Ghost, I could say, is somewhat subjective. The Holy Ghost is not subjective, but sometimes we feel things that are emotions and not the Spirit. Circumstances can be subjective. And I know that people are not always right, but that's why the Bible said the multitude of counselors. That's why I felt that wave of emotion. Because I thank God every time I've made a major decision in my life that I had enough sense to ask somebody else to talk to me and tell me the truth and not hold anything back. Oh, tell me what you think I want to hear. I want to know what God wants me to do. Now I'm just going to give you a little clue and people go to pastors and spiritual leaders and they say, Brother Pastor, this is what I want to do. What do you think? Well, what do I think? I think you're going to do what you want to do. You don't really care what I'm going to say. If you really want counsel, then you go even-handed and you say, I've got this decision. You can say, I'm leaning this way, but... I'm open to God. I want to know, what am I to do? I've prayed and I've studied the Bible and these circumstances are working, this kind of composite things the way God works. But help me, save me from myself. Save me from my subjectivity. Save me from being so close to the forest that I can't see the trees. I can be blinded by so many things. And as a man, as a pastor, I listen to my wife because often my wife, there, I can't say I've always listened to my wife. There's been some times I should have. But I listen to my wife because often my wife is more sensitive to the Holy Ghost in me and reads things that I don't read. She also knows me. So there's been some times in my life when she kind of tipped me off ahead of time. We were just talking about this the other day. In 1994, when we came to preach Atlanta Youth Convention, we were on the way from the airport to the hotel. I was a general youth president. This church did not need a pastor. We're just driving in the car. Scott Johnson had picked us up. We're going to the hotel. He was talking about just coming to Atlanta and we're taking a church here in the north side of town. We got to the hotel. My wife said, man, Daryl, she said, well, she said, something happened to me. She said, it was like a baby inside of me just kind of quivering or turning in me. She said, I don't know why, but, but I feel like we're supposed to be in Atlanta. This is seven, eight months before it was even, a, six months before it was even a possibility. But God started that started that process in my wife 
so that as it unfolded, she was prepared for a big change and a challenge of our life. The will of God unfolded. I don't have time to go to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. But I encourage you, if you're taking notes, to write it down and go there. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Practical advice from Solomon about the will of God. That's my life, two verses. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Four things. Trust in the Lord all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In every area of your life acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Would you stand please? God, I want your will in my life. Amen. If you want to spend a few minutes in prayer, you're welcome to come. I know it's late for some of you to have very early mornings, and I respect that if you need to go. But the altars are open now. We're just going to come and open our hearts to God. Amen. An old wonderful course about Jesus be the Lord of all the kingdoms of my heart. If that's the way you feel tonight, why don't we just spend a few moments in the presence of the Lord and then take this home and apply it to our lives in a practical way.